Welcome to Superlative. I am your podcast host, Ariel Adams. In each episode, you will meet someone who has inspired or takes inspiration from today's wristwatch industry. Every week, let's dive deep into the world of crafting exotic timepieces from the people who dream them up to the people who dream of them. It's time to get started and meet today's guest. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest is Mr. Xavier de Rocmarel, and he's the guy running Chopek. Xavier, good to speak with you again. Yes, hello, Ariel. Hello, everyone. It's always a pleasure to be connected to the other side of the globe in California with you. And uh, California always evokes some great souvenirs or dreams or spirits. So it's always cool to be there in a small world. <laughs> Thank you. And I remember the last time we had a conversation was really around the launch of the Antarctic, which has been a game-changing watch and product for Chapek. But before I said, when did you change the name from Chapek and see just the Chapek? I think that's sort of an interesting intro in the bigger conversation we're going to have, which is refinement of the brand, right? Refinement of how you do things, always changing the inside. Yeah. Um, it's true. You you made a, a chain from Chapek and C to just Chapek, right? Well, actually, not exactly, uh, but it's a good point to underline. The, the company was always registered. So the registration name is Chapek and C SA, uh, which... Uh, would stand for Co in English, Coalition Corporation. Uh, but then that's name has always been there, Chapek and C. Yet in the past, actually François Chapek in the 1850s was always signing his watch Chapek and C, or Chapek is Polka, which is the same in, in Polish. But we always wanted it to be Chapek Genève and to refer to the to the city where the company was founded. Uh, in 1845, and uh, so we we basically are using the two. One is more the sort of the uh, uh, company name, and the the uh, the other one would be uh, uh, the uh, the uh, brand name. And I think in, in California there is a, a story that is quite similar with a company uh, with the name of a fruit that actually uh, has changed its name a little bit and and made it simpler. Uh, to get even more success. So I think uh, everybody recognizes which company I'm referring to. And I think we are a bit in the same process, which is, I think people just say Chapek, and that's perfectly fine. Uh, well, I, it's a proper way to, to speak about the brand. You know, it's it's. I think it's interesting to point out because it represents a shift in the way the brand talks about itself. There is a simplicity in it, and you always, as you run a company, you always need to find efficiencies or else you drive yourself crazy and things get more and more complicated. And there is a difference of, of you know, when the brand had the dials that were Chopek and C. Uh, now, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, they, you know, a lot of them say Chopek. And, and again, it's not a matter of good or bad. It's, it's just an interesting thing because over a relatively short amount of time, I think your company has evolved a lot. You've, you know, again, in the traditional industry, but there's really nothing traditional about the way that they're run. They're run very different today than in the past. And I think it's sort of an interesting thing how you as an entrepreneur have as much storytelling to do as you do watchmaking storytelling, right? Yes, it is. And it is true that it's uh, it's actually... Uh, 
a way to survive, to simplify. Because uh, the more the business grows, the more things get complex, and you need to absolutely simplify without losing the essence. So it's also a good parallelism, uh, what you're making, which is how uh, how much Chatec needs to evolve without losing its uh, its essence. So the essence is in Chatec, and uh, it's possibly also another element that comes to your mind, Ariel, which is the fact that there is a perception evolving. And uh, some of the things that before you were seeing in a certain way, you see them in another way now, without necessarily having changed profoundly. And that's uh, something that is very true when you come to to come to iron products. When I was working at Loewe, I had the same uh, reality, which is you do something and before people looked at you in a certain way because everything was old in the store and you rejuvenate the whole collection and suddenly people give you attributes you used to have, but nobody was seeing them and they suddenly see them again, you know? So that's uh, that's also part, I would say, of what people would call brand management, uh, which is to show some of your attributes in a better way. Well, I mean, as a brand manager, it's so great to talk to you because it's not that there's a right and wrong way to do it. Well, I guess there's a lot of wrong ways to do it. There's no one right way to do it, but caring is half the battle. And you truly care a whole lot because if, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you're always thinking about small details you can change, aren't you? Yes, of course. And some are not really details. They seem from far away uh, to be details. And I think that the work of a, of a CEO has to be in that kind of company, deeply rooted to the product and to the brand. And, uh, and the real work is to actually see, you know, as if you were watching TV and you had the Bloomberg you know, news band at the bottom of your TV, and this is what's going on in the company. And so you've got, you've got hundreds of messages that are com- coming to your brain and, and you have to receive them. And suddenly you pick up one and say, this is important. And you extract from the thread this element, you focus on it and resolve it or you make it evolve or you make it better. And this is, this is my vision of, of what is a, a performing CEO. So it's not about micromanagement and it's not about big pictures. These two concepts were invented by consultants who are trying to get money. It's okay <laughs> to try to get money, but the reality is none of these. The reality is that you have to be capable to be fit on the ground and head in the air and head high in the air and to have the both things going together and pick up from the ground what's going on really. I mean, I think to run a, a watch company today successfully, you can't just be a CEO. You have to be a combination of a manager and a show person and, you know, uh, uh, an artist. And you have to think, as they say in the business world, crazy. I remember how when I started going to the watch industry, I heard the Swiss say the word crazy all the time. I was like, what are they talking about? Like, no one here is really crazy. But now I understand what they mean because it the decisions they make defy the numbers. The graph said it was going to go the total other way. They went the other way than the graph said. Like, for them, that's crazy. And you cannot have a manager come and follow a system or a rule book. You, you know, you, you sort of, using your own phraseology, I hear say, you know, you have to have big ideas. You have to have a vision. You have to try to chase that vision. Um, and without that, uh, I, I mean, tell me what you think. It's very difficult to run a watch brand today. 
you know, it is. And what you say about being crazy uh, is very important because, and you can see that actually by true numbers. Out of the 200 shareholders of Champek, there are no companies which are companies that are not actually uh, holding companies belonging to one man. It's always individuals who have decided to become shareholders. And whenever you talk to a group of people, there is always the one or two rational finance guy that says, no, no, what you're talking about defies the number. And this was 10 years ago. This is still true today. And it's very interesting because you tell, you see the guy you say, yeah, you're perfectly right. You're, you're mathematically right. But to make a business survive actually defies the reason because nine out of 10 startups will fail. And, and you see that it's more linked to emotional and maybe even emotional elements that make that your company is going to do well. Now, I'm going to ask a question on what you think about sort of an answer here. Other than making a good watch that people want to buy, what else do you need to do to make people want to buy a watch? It's sort of a question of what, do you, what did you need to do over the last several years to gain this success? Because it's not just make a good watch. The question is, what else did you need to be good at? It's not what you necessarily did, but like what did you need to be good at that allowed you to do, make the right decisions where your, your nice watch then sold? Okay, so... I'm not going to, 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 to give a lecture. I'm going to focus on Chapek. <laughs> that does not mean that what I'm saying is true for another company. I'm just going to say what I think we may have done right. And you were right before when you said there is not one option. It's always, you have various options. You come to a, a crossroad every day, every week, every month, every year. I don't know how often for every company, but it comes often. And so you choose, you choose one road and you will never know if the other road was better. You know sometimes that the road was a dead end, but you usually don't know if it was the best solution. So in the very beginning, one of the key elements we did, you know, it's either a new brand or an old brand that you revive. Now, when new brand, it's not us. We were the old brand that we revived. And the key decision we took there was to stay true to the founder. To really take our egos, put them in the pocket, close the pocket, and now we work at the service of François Tepec, reviving his company. And so we need to find a way to have him alive with us. And to, uh, this is going to give us our first years of direction of work, and then we will have the foundations to build the rest of the, of the level of the building, or the rest of the garden. I prefer to speak about a garden, actually, when I, I speak about the brand. And that was really uh, important. For us, what we did was counter-logical. Uh, when you look at very famous brands that were um, uh, restarted or started in the last two decades, we started from the bottom. Usually, you're supposed to start from the top. Uh, and you impress people, and then you make product that uh, uh, can be at a cheaper price and sometimes can be at a higher price, but you, you expand the span of your, of your range now. For us, uh, really it came from the bottom because we were crowdfunded. And so that would be maybe the third element I would give is to stay very logic. Common sense is your best friend. And so if you're crowdfunded, you know that you will have people that will be around you and that have different level of, of, of uh, disposable income. They are not all going to be, to be millionaires. So 
we wanted to make a watch that everybody could actually buy as a shareholder and and talk around them, saying, okay, look at that topic, it's interesting, you know, look at the way the watch is made, etc. So the watch was true to Chapek. The watch was beautiful. We're going to speak about beauty now. And, and the watch was, even if it's a highly priced, now we're not talking that, uh, that it's very accessible, but it was more accessible than some other uh, brands of the autologerie uh, world. And, mm-hmm. and that also actually gave us also the vision about Chapek that we use today, which is we consider ourselves as, as a bridge to autologerie from people who are buying maybe a more industrial product and that one suddenly a watch with a soul. So that, that, that was a little bit the path that we followed. Now, the question of beauty is critical because uh, Chapek was in love with beauty. We analyzed all these watches, trying to understand who was the man behind the watch. You know, it's a bit like when we were at school and reading a poet and trying to understand what the poet was, was trying right. to say. And you, could, you wish you could just ask the poet, right? Exactly. Just writing there. Well, to be asked tomorrow by the teacher, I was always asked because he loved to, to grill me uh, in classroom. And, um, and then you, you actually, maybe one poet you're going to start to like a lot. For me, it was Baudelaire and uh, Les Fours du Mal. And then I, uh, I started understanding well, who was the man behind the poem, no? And we did the same for Chapel. And it's the same period of time, which is very interesting. And Baudelaire wrote a text, uh, actually, later, that was, for me, a defining text in my, in my working life. And the text says a very simple thing, that beauty is made of two elements, which is, one is eternal. One is like, there's a common something that you are going to look at and say, it's beautiful. can be the Acropolis in Athens. can be can be whatever things that we are really a reference for us. And we look at it and we say, wow, this is incredible. And then there's another part to beauty, which is ephemeral, which makes that suddenly one item is we are going to be uh, fond of uh, loving it, you know? So I was listening to you speaking, and what I was thinking actually was how your love of literature moves into your management style. And I'm imagining you giving your, the staff this vision. You're telling them a story. You're educating them about, you know, what you're learning about the, you know, the, the founder Chapek and what you want to do. And I think that you're giving them through your words and your love of language enough of a vision so that they can carry on. Because I think this is a real problem in a lot of the uh, brands is there might be a genius designer, watchmaker, whatever, but their ability to share that vision with others outside of their product is oftentimes quite limited and Chopic is lucky to have you, a word person. Yeah, and uh, with the accident I had uh, recently, um, there was a big stress. We like, what's going to happen if you uh, if you pass away, no? So, yeah, so let's talk about that. So you had, uh, well, for the company that didn't have a boss there every day for a while, you had a personal health emergency, you know, that was a shocking period for the company. Again, thinking of the company first and you second, the company had a real shock. You had a near-death experience. What was that like for a small watch brand that clearly needs someone there all the time? Well, um, you know, every side, uh, every coin has two sides. Uh, has two sides. And that's, that's, that's a sentence I like to repeat because I was, you know, unemployed when I started Chapek. So it's actually... Uh, 
the beauty of, of that restart, which was a resurrection for as much traffic as for Xavier. Um, the good thing about my accident was that on day one, uh, if you take day zero, it happened at, at in the middle of the night, you know, at 11.30, that uh, on the day after, immediately the team regrouped and, and, the, and the workforce started. And this workforce uh, turned into becoming the first um, company managing committee or, or COMEX, you know. So we suddenly from, from, from the one day to another had a working COMEX with people uh, working together, dividing uh, the work and making sure that... Uh, since oh, so you had like forced delegation. People had to take over. Exactly. Because we were... <laughs> we were. You made them uncomfortable. It forced them to adapt. <laughs> exactly. Two two months, three months later, it was watches, not even three months, two months and a half later, it was watches and wonder. They needed to have the prototypes. They needed to have everything ready. It was our first watches and wonder. We were like, oh, what's going to happen? And, uh, and I'm in the hospital. And I actually don't know at that moment that I'm passing away. That it was just too, 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 too strong and too, too fast, you know? And then uh, in the end, we don't really realize I'm, uh, I'm in the, on the bed, you know, in the hospital, just waiting for the, in the first hospital, waiting for the helicopter to the go, go to the other one. I dictate a WhatsApp uh, message to the team. And from that, they pick up, you know? And the reactions were very different between people. And that's also interesting because it's a, you know, as the soldier said, you know, the proof of fire. So we had some people who really get completely submerged and drowned, basically, because I was not there. Right. You got some people who tumbled but hold on to their hands like a, someone who is a cliffhanger and is, is holding is hold only on the on the top of, of his uh, of his fingers, and we had <laughs> and we had people who were like horses waiting to run in the prairie, you know. And uh, did you did you know this as it was happening, or did you hear about this after the fact? No, after the fact, after the fact, I could notice okay. it. Okay. And and I had two people in the team who were just like, and I was amazed. You know, I was like, "Whoa, thank God I, I was in the hospital because I could not see before how much prepared they were." for running the show. And so uh, that became immediately uh, my two uh, right arms, if you want. And uh, and then I hired another person and, and rebalanced the team between all. And now we are five people in the in the managing committee and, and then it's, run, it's running well. So, so that was a good aspect of it. And we prepared a, a document called the Protocol X, which actually clarifies what happens on the on the day I'm dead and on the next days, you know. And most companies speak about doing that and none of them does it, you know. The contingency plan, because it's very painful to actually prepare your death when you're 53 and and the company is, is booming, you know, but uh, you have to. So now <laughs> everything is set, everything is clear. Uh, even the content uh, is ready. So uh, I can die safely. <laughs> If it's possible to no, die it's safely. actually it's a relief actually yeah. to have that type of plan. Yes, it, it is. makes you feel better. Yeah, it is. It is, and and if you, I cannot hire someone to be my my successor today because that would mean I'm planning to die tomorrow. But no, I'm planning to live long. Uh, the life expectancy of people who have had that kind of of cardiovascular accident as is much longer now. Before it was six uh, percent after 
after five years, you know, now it's between 50 and 80% after five years. So it's much, much better. And, uh, and I'm planning to live until the age of 77, even maybe 80. I'm, I'm revising my budget upward. Uh, same thing inside Capec. <laughs> we, we revise your budget uh, during the year because the year is good. And, uh, and yeah, we'll see. So I, I do plan to work until 65 and, and retire and be happy uh, taking care of my wife and of my kids. Well, there's uh, an interesting question there. So that means... If if you plan on being at Chapek until you die, it means that this is it. You don't want to do other watch brand stuff. Like you're happy, you know, ostensibly doing this uh, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, and you know, Chapek has so much power behind, so much opportunities, so many opportunities, so 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 much to do. We would be a, a complete uh, a wrong decision. To go after other other objectives, you know, there is enough here to do. Thank you. Well, I want to ask a question specifically about product now, and maybe a few questions about it. I think that one way of looking at the collection of watches uh, that you make right now is sort of modern looking and a little bit more traditional. You know, you have slightly different dials and different hands, and even entire concepts. Some watches definitely look like they have a foot, uh, most of their foot in the past, and some a little bit more in the future. The question is, which of those two has done better? Or is there really no difference? Because I think there's this always big question a brand is, is should, I, should I be futuristic, modern, contemporary, or should I be firmly rooted in the past? And, I'm, and, it's, and some brands do it both at the same time. Some seem to do one or another. Is there anything that works better for Chapek? Um, so let's come back to the analogy I was making with the garden. A garden is a living thing. A garden may, the land could belong to the gardener, but not necessarily. And the trees will really want to grow the way they want to grow. The gardener is going to help the trees to, to, to become. And the gardeners can choose, can choose to, to some specific seed and where he's going to seed there. So he's got some influence there. And this is probably where you would definitely say, is it more toward the future or toward the past that this gardener is working? And for me, there is no... There is no other option than looking at the future. That's that's obvious. When Chapek was alive, he was a modern guy. He was making watches that were a little bit more extreme than the watches of his uh, contemporary uh, watchmakers uh, uh, other, of other origins. You know, that's really interesting to see that we can derive that from the way the uh, numerals were longer, thinner the way they were disposed, the aesthetic he right. was working on. All these elements make you think, okay, the guy was really edgy at that time. So it's the same thing for us today. We have to be edgy. But the guy was not extravagant either. So the same thing, we have not to be uh, extravagant. We have to be creative without going to the extravagance. And this is giving us the past. And in the first uh, models, the Kedeberg, Place Vendôme, we had done this exercise of uh, the, from the past to the present and from the present to the future. And then we saw that people were expecting us in the future, so that we had to be looking at if if Chapek was alive today, what would he like to do? Certainly not a pocket watch of the 1850. He would love to do a super modern restretch, but keeping his personality. And that's what I would recommend to do, which is 
to really understand well what is your brand mission and vision and to uh, uh, run the show according to that and to develop products according to this direction. Um, so am I to understand that they both do well? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, you may understand that we have taken one, one direction that, as I told you, we never know if it's the right direction because we don't, we don't know if the other one was, would have been a better direction. But we might have an opinion on that. <laughs> and the opinion is that it's better to go okay. toward the future than to be always with the past because there's one moment when you turn running circles because you just reinvent the past. I mean, you know, my, my theory is actually that it, it isn't really about that. My theory is that a brand like Shopping, you're not the only one, but this is definitely not the story for every brand, is that rather than get any one specific watch or look popular, you created enough buzz to great brand desirability. You you like you did enough at one point after a few years of work to make Chopek as a brand desirable. And there was all this latent interest where someone was like, that's nice, but you know, I don't know the brand, or that's nice, but that might be too expensive, or that's nice, but we'll see if they're here to fears. You you did that for long enough. And it seemed to be that there was this overall brand lift. And because you had, had, had you know, created some momentum and, and, and gone out there in the market and you're a charming guy and people got to meet you and the watches, of course, are very pretty. That's my guess. That Again, there's no one look as long as it's sort of tasteful and nice and fits within your perception of what Mr. Tropic Senior <laughs> Original whatever wanted to do. I think that you can just continue on that basis because you've earned a sort of trust with the community. We, we knew at the beginning that in French we say manger son pain noir. It would be literally eat your black bread. So it means the bread that is uh, the cheapest one because that's the only one you can afford. No? We knew that for, for five years we would uh, eat our, our black bread. And we were ready for that. So how did you know this? Because most CEOs, and, and especially they start up brands, they think in six months they're going to be making money. How did you know it would take at least five years? Well, because we ask around and we, we ask people all the time. That's why you say... You okay, say, then you listened. Then you course, listened. Really, Great. That's, the key, that's the key thing. And you know, the, the birth of the Antarctic is born out of listening and, and analyzing. And then from that, projecting what could be the solution. Again, I use conditional, what could be. That doesn't mean it was the only solution, but that was a possibility. But really, we were listening to people, and, and most of the people here were saying, you know, you start with one million, you feel you, you miss it because you should have had two million. You start with three million, and you miss it because you would have needed six million. You start with five million because you would need ten million. And for me, what was interesting it was the value was changing, but the, the process that is failed entrepreneurs was following was always it was the fault of the other and never mind and I should have had more money and then it would have gone better. And I thought, okay, I have to think about it as if I would never have any money. How can I make it work with no money or with very little money? And this is what, what we did. In the end we raised about five point five million uh but by trance huh? and it's very good to be starting because you become spartiate. So you focus on the only most essential thing that you need to make your company survive. You don't invest everywhere. You just think, okay, to survive, I just, 
I need this to work. So you, you put all your neural energy into that, and suddenly it works, and that's a new milestone for the company, and you get to the next level. So that's really, uh, I would say, the, the process to, uh, to get things working. Interesting. Hi, this is Ariel Adams, founder of A Blog to Watch, with a message about eBay. I visit eBay daily and have been relying on eBay to learn about and acquire watches for more than 20 years. Did you know that you can now buy watches directly from brands or their authorized dealers on eBay? Timepieces coveted by watch enthusiasts from brands like Zodiac, Loco, Parallel, and more are part of eBay's Certified by Brand program. Here's how it works. Luxury names are partnering with eBay to bring brand new and pre-owned watches and other luxury accessories directly to you. Certified by brand includes a minimum one-year factory warranty for watches and offers an unprecedented selection of new and used watches directly from the source, all with a peace of mind you can expect from eBay. Visit ebay.com slash certified by brand for more information. I'm going to talk about sales and business and distribution models because the last several years, someone in your role has been able to choose from a lot of things. I'm not saying they're all right and you shouldn't necessarily do all of them, but if you're a watch brand CEO, you recognize that you can sell wholesale, you can sell direct, you can sell, uh, you can do pre-orders, you can do limited editions, you can do collaborations. There's so many different types of selling. What has and has not worked for Chopek? Uh, so the beginnings were just tremendous. You know, we were in, in Basel world. And we were in the old 2.2. Two. You know, probably nobody remembers right. where the old 2.2 was. I remember uh, a friend of mine, retailer. Up, up, upstairs. Uh, outside, you know, <laughs> who, there was a guy who was trying to, uh, one of the few guys who were trying to, to retail Chapek. He got lost for 23 minutes running in circle to try to find the booze. We were really at the end of, of, uh, of nowhere. And in a very tiny booth, 12 square meters, you know, so very humble. But still, people were shocked, you know, that Chapek is being revived by three guys that we don't know in the industry. Who are they? What's happening there? They're going to die tomorrow. So it was a bit like, you know, uh, the, the guys going up the Eager at, uh, at the beginning uh, of last century or in the 30s. And, uh, and, and the, everybody was coming to see us to see the guys who were going to die. You know, the next, the next one in the line for dying, you know. So we had a lot of visits. You know, it was incredible. Everywhere, from everywhere in the world, people were, were visiting to see who are these crazy guys, but no others. So we left. We had a plan to get 75 watches in order. Uh, so it was five watches per retailer, 15 retailers. We met maybe 50 retailers. No other except one order of one watch for himself from uh, uh, Marek Pusinski in Poznan, you know, in, in Poland. So that was the only order we got. Okay. So it's like, like I will, uh, one day I will put his... Your... See, you you had one early adopter. Exactly. The guy, because it's Polish watchmaker, I'm Polish, I have to do it. There's always going to be a few people like exactly. that, right? And that's actually your milestone. And you, we were like, okay. This is not working. You have to remember that it was 2016. We were in the, in the middle of one of these crises that uh, watchmaking has when suddenly there is too much stock in the markets and then and the economy is not good and then nobody buys anymore until stock drops. You know? So 
it was really tough. And we said, okay, what can we do? And I said, okay, we're started. We can rewrite the story. Let's take a white sheet of paper and imagine what we can do. And we said, okay, our closest friends, who are they? Our shareholders. Okay, let's focus on them. What do we do? Okay, we have our watch. We're going to push that watch to the shareholder. Okay, what could we do else? Well, with the same movement, we could make a women watch. And we made a women's watch that we sold on, on hand design. Never do that. Never do that. We struggled like hell after to make that the watch was looking like what we, what we designed because we were running out of cash. So we needed to, to get some orders. And then we run into a huge <laughs> problems of manufacturing because one of the case manufacturers totally, uh, I mean, betrayed us somehow, you know, promised things that he never did. So, uh, that was also a big struggle. But we finished horrible. horrible, horrible. So we started the year with one order of one watch, and we finished the year with the 88 watch order. Oh, an auspicious number. Yeah, exactly. So, so you see how you can change your destiny with uh, something that is not rational, something that the number that defies the, the Excel file of the financial, just because you believe in it and you. You scratch your mind and you focus on your problem to resolve it. And this is really the beauty of being an entrepreneur. So you mentioned that Chopic has uh, a certain number of shareholders, not a, a, not a huge number, but, you know, more than can comfortably sit in, in, in most rooms. What do they want of you? Obviously, if you are just about making money, you're probably not going to, you know, put your time, especially into having meetings with a with a with a small independently run luxury watch brand, who who are these individuals, and what exactly uh, are they looking for from you? So today we have we have two hundred shareholders, and uh, the, this has evolved a lot. At the beginning, it was a smaller group, fifty to one hundred, and they were very close, and they were really the ones fueling the sales by ordering every year maybe fifty watches. Today, they are still ordering 50 watches per year, but that represents a very small part of, of the company uh, outputs. And, uh, and of course, for us, then, therefore, it's not, it's not our survival uh, weapon. It's more our secret weapon uh, because our, our shareholders are behind every detail, uh, behind what's happening in the market. Many of them are, are watch collectors. Many of them are entrepreneurs, so they... They understand my position as entrepreneur, and they and they love watches, and this brings together an extreme, incredible added value knowledge as long as you can take the best of it. And here, really comes to the attitude. It really comes to what you profoundly believe your company is. And this company, big crowdfunded equity crowdfunded, so sharing the capital with two hundred people, is based on sharing. So here. It's all about transparency that helps collaboration and that helps the sharing in the end. That's the keywords and that the values that we practice every day in the company. Very difficult to leave. Newcomers in the company as employees, we leave them one, two months to understand what's going on. They all believe from outside it's super cool to work in a company that is about honesty, integrity, transparency, collaboration, sharing. But then they suddenly realize that they walk naked all the day, all the time, because every mistake they will do, people will ex expect them to say, oh, shit, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Uh, let's correct it together because we cannot continue like that. And the normal attitude in a company is 
when there is a mistake to say nothing and hope it will fall on someone else's uh, back, you know, or to pass the, the monkey from one shoulder to the other. It's a totally different way to work. Well, I, that doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me because, again, you, you seem to lead through a narrative, a vision. And the goal isn't to make you, Xavier, happy. The goal is to satisfy the vision that you've convinced them we, you all should pursue. Yes. And you see, everything is interlinked. If we hadn't been crowdfunded, then we would not have developed in-house these values. And still... Is crowdfunding the, is crowdfunded the right name here? Because I just think that, I feel like that means yeah, something else. I know, you're you know right. What I mean? You're right, me too. Uh, in French, we say financement participative. So participative financing would be uh, crowdfunding equity. But I agree that it's not so crowdfunding. They, they, there must be a better word in English. Let's, let's try to find it, Gary. Uh, but I think people understand what I'm meaning. Is that 200 shareholders, we work like a quoted company, like a listed company. We put ourselves on objectives. Is it, cooper- is it a cooperative? Like you all not only own part of it, but you do stuff within it? No, no, no. It's really like a, like a listed company that is not listed. It's a listed okay. company where, but isn't that just where a- people love it so much that it became a community when we never well, tried. Well, it's a privately held company with exactly. shareholders. Exactly. Except that you have. Okay. But again, you're poetic and you have a special way of, of saying it. And look, that's what this industry needs. It needs someone like you to come up with a term and to say, you know what? I've just defined something new. Okay. Before me, these companies didn't exist. Now they <laughs> no, do. No, but it was existing in the past. But it's just that we pushed it to the, to the <laughs> maximum. And, and I don't want people to think that you, you started your company on Kickstarter. That's yeah, my that point. Yeah, I understood that was your point. And you're totally right. That's why <laughs> word crowdfunding is not good. But we, I'll find a word that is better for that. But we work like that. It's a privately held company, a corporation, 200 shareholders. But many of these shareholders are participating uh, inside the company. So I've got a board, and the board is very strong. Six people. I'm one of the board members. But that, they are running the company according to the best standards of governance. Then, uh, And I'm mandated by the board as a CEO to run the execution, to be the executive of the, uh, of the, of the board. Then I have an advisory board. And this advisory board is made by shareholders who have a deep knowledge of what's making a huge collection maybe, or just about 20 people. How yeah. many, do, do they, are they an adversary on every decision or how does it work? No, it's me playing with them. They know they are guinea pigs of Xavier. So <laughs> they, <laughs> <laughs> that's, the truth. that's the way we joke about it. So I test them, saying, oh, what do you think of that? You know, I don't always play with them. They know I'm, they know I'm playing with them, but they love it because. Oh, they, so an advisory board. I thought you yeah, said adversary. Oh, because oh, adversary oh, would mean like an oh, enemy. Like I set no, them up to challenge advi- my position. Oh, advisory, advisory. Ah, so okay. it's much more on the product side, and it's much more on the on the product development. Uh, I was like, what a cool idea to have, like an like to actually have a team and be like, okay. Your job is to try to oppose my decisions. And if I can't convince you it's a good idea, we shouldn't do it. <laughs> it's, it's an idea that comes up out of that podcast. And that's why I do love to make these deep interviews with you and with some of your confrères, uh, which are also bright and, uh, and to the point because there are always good ideas 
coming from these exchanges. I, I hear. I, look, I I have to look very straight ahead. I can't look at what the competition is doing. And some of the people on Superlative, after the show, you know, say, you know, these are good questions and things like that. Is it my understanding that there's some very bad interviews? No, but it depends on how deep the person goes into into the detail. Again, you know, we spoke about details. Some details are not details. They I seem mean, for the common people that it's their details, but they're important. But Zavi, this, this is an industry for people who are obsessed with details. That's the common thread amongst everyone that is in the watch industry likes watches. Oh. In our own ways, we're all obsessed with details, right? Yes, that's right. It's just a matter of what is important, the criticity. With, uh, <laughs> what details Italian, do you care about? Uh, well, uh, in Italian, they say uh, or in Spanish, and, and that's that's really what we're talking about. And you know, we're speaking about governance. If you want a company to become an extraordinary company, you do need to have an extraordinary governance. Yeah. It's even more important than the market you're in, and that's what we're talking about. So. So, so I'm going to maybe create that advi- uh, adversary team in a soft way. <laughs> now yeah. that I recovered from the accident to make sure that I got, I got always some uh, reaction. But so far, I just say to the team, please raise your voice when, when you think that I'm wrong because I don't want that if I jump to the cliff, uh, through the cliff or over the cliff, everybody follows me. You know? We're not lemmings. <laughs> so, you uh, know, well, I'm just, again, thinking about your recovery, and it's it's so great that you were able to recover from such a scare like that. But I, I have a question. This happens from time to time because there are other people who have health scares and fortunately bounce back. And once in a while, people come away, you know, either either not liking luxury as much or not necessarily thinking it's as important because, you know, in the scheme of things – to obsess over the watch you're wearing, you know, it's 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 not as important as your as your health. It's it's a luxury to think about, you know, luxury. <laughs> and uh, did you have moments where you were wondering, you know, is this really where should I be focusing on my energy, or was there something maybe validating about what you're doing? I'm just curious, you know, what your 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 intimate moments were uh, and and how you felt about luxury. No. The problem of luxury is that it's often associated with money. And I associate it with excellence, with pushing the bar to the maximum, you know, with overpassing oneself. That's my translation for luxury, to do the best possible with the resource you have at that moment of time. And then what you were talking before about deciding what to do, this is exactly what is the most important task of a CEO, is to be selective. To not try to do everything, but you get a list of 10 things every day, and you're going to do two of them. And tomorrow, you'll have a new list of 10 things. And maybe some will be new, maybe some will be old, but you will be only doing two of them. So you have to be very selective on the right ones. And this is what makes that your company eventually succeeds or fails. Well, I think a lot of it can be looked at as an analogy with the game roulette, where, you know, in the betting phase of roulette, like, you know that something on the table is going to win. <laughs> One of them has to win, but you don't know where to put your resources. You can spread it out a lot, but not really get very much back, or you can get lucky, or maybe you can have some strategy. And then after the wheel 
uh, turns and the ball you know falls on the number, it's so easy for people to be like, well, there's the winning number right there. Why didn't you bet on that? And you're like, I had to make my decision before anyone knew where, where the ball was going to be. Sometimes being a CEO can be like that, right? Yes, exactly. It's, it's a very good analogy. And the fact is that you do have more information than a roulette player because you can read the market. But as a CEO, you have very limited power. You cannot control the market. So the market maybe will be the roulette itself. You cannot control the competitors, which may be uh, the croupier, the guy uh, uh, launching the ball inside the roulette. You, so you don't control two-thirds of your environment of what's going on. So you have to focus on the one-third and make the right decision with the few information that you have. But if the croupier is always launching the ball at the same position, uh, when the roulette is always in that area, maybe you will fall on the right number if you calculate well the odds of getting a, a 32 and a round or whatever. But uh, I've never been that good at that. So I've decided to uh, <laughs> run a company than, than playing the roulette. <laughs> well, look, at least in roulette, there is a winning play on the table. In business, you can try everything you know how to do and spread it as far as you can and still lose. Yes, yes. But for sure, in the both cases, if you if you bet on everything, you end up losing. So you have to be selective. That's 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 a good point. Um, going back to the point where we were discussing the business model and different types of distribution sales techniques, some that worked and some that didn't. Yes, a rocky start. But I want to know that once you sort of got going and you, of course, wanted to have some stability and you don't want to have just one retailer or just one model, you know, every person uh, who's running a company wants to be well diversified. What did you try and what ended up working really well for you and what sales strategies maybe were not right for Chopek? So do you understand that we were basically born from direct sales okay. and, uh, and not from retail sales? The retailer right. came in later on. And when the brand was uh, actually consolidated and, and capable to, uh, to run by itself in a way that was reassuring for the people, it was all about building trust. And, uh, and that, that really uh, made the difference. What we understood was it was a journey. And that at every step of that journey, we would get more people. But we also remained true to our mind, what, to our vision, to our objective, which was to be balanced on two feet. Balance between direct sales and balance between retailers. We love the retailers. And, and in fact, we have partners who are shareholders. We have partners who are supplying partners. So they, they make our components, they make, make our dials. And then we have partners who are, they are retailers. And it's the same spirit. It's the same family. It's the same way of working. Same way of being transparent. Same way of saying, sorry, I did wrong. I'm correct that. I'm correcting that. We're going together in the right direction. That's, that's really a, a mindset, if you want. And this is the mindset that makes that the business uh, today goes well. So it's still really focused on personal relationships and then having relationships with dealers who themselves really focus on personal relationships. Absolutely. It's a people's business. We, we all love watches. And that's what makes, in the end, us living, but is, that's what also makes that business so unique. And we're not aiming at having too many partners. I think we have uh, 
36 uh, uh, different partners, uh, 47 doors, I think, in the world. And, uh, and we will grow a bit, but we want to keep them forever. So we, we don't want to grow too much. We want to grow to a size that we can maintain everybody happy, everyone with a, with a banana smile and, uh, and progressing uh, with this deep relationship, close relationship, where we just WhatsApp from one business owner to another business owner. And that's what we are, you know, business owners right. talking together. No, it's, it's, it's lovely to hear you talk about it because you do have a good relationship with them. And it's not always the case. I think that you need to have a very strong, close relationship with the dealers you have because there's problems that happen on both sides. Uh, dealers don't trust brands and uh, dealers that don't have a good relationship with brands sometimes uh, engage in activities bad for the brand. Um, you know, trans shipping or, or over discounting, which can hurt in the long run and things like that. Undercutting other dealers is <clears throat> one of the nastiest things you can do. And that's uh, that that can be eroded away through having just, you know, good personal relationships with everyone. Uh, changing topics, and again, I think this is sort of the last question we probably have time for in this conversation. Has it been a good decision to rely on retailers and collectors um, and various types of you know outside opinions uh, for the various limited editions and a lot of the new watches? Maybe not the whole model collections, but you've created a lot of personalized variety out there for people that believe in the brand. Um, do you think that that's been a very good way of getting creative inspiration? And what are the other sources of creative inspiration that you get? Totally, totally. You know, at the beginning, we had limited orders and capacity to do things. So 80% of our watch were personalized. And even more, we had some people requesting a bespoke watch or a bespoke dial. And so we always said, you know, please have a seat. You know, I was working at, at Xenia before. And so we were doing the Subizura, the Metumojo. We had the culture of sitting uh, with a person and, and asking the person, what do you like? What color do you like? What fabric do you like or what material do you like? You know, and that's the same actually for for when it comes to 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 watchmaking and to making a bespoke watch. And so you sit with the person. And what was interesting was to suddenly realize that the person who was the most demanding were usually people who had already a quite consolidated collection, and they knew what they like, and they knew what was missing in the market that they couldn't find. So then you have to have your discerning uh, uh, criteria to decide, is this guy giving me a lecture on what is the trend of the market? Or is it a strange guy with a ludicrous taste? You know? And you can have the two extremes of the, of the reality. And, but very often, um, you are maybe closer to the center, but you are close to what the trend is today. So when you make bespoke watches, you get an immediate learning of what people would really love to find in the market. And, and this is giving you a direction. And sometimes you say, look, you're asking me for something that is too simple and too beautiful to make a bespoke watch. It's going to be a limited edition. Sorry, sorry, mate. But you're going to have prototype number one. Okay for you. Very often they say, okay for me. I understand because it was not so complex what I'm asking for, but that's really what I love to have. And that became a limited edition. So it was, you know, you accept to not be necessarily having the truth falling on you every morning. But on the contrary, to be open to listen 
And from that, with an open table to say, okay, let's let's do that that way. Let's do that direction. I, yeah. I have to add something here, which I think is really important, and that's the context. Because the not all the brands, but most other brands would not have been as open as you were to making this huge variety of limited editions out there. Like once in a while they'll do it, but it's really, you've been quite prolific with it. And I think what's important to say is that the retailers that you're doing this with are so excited that you'll do stuff for them that they have all this pent up desire because they've been said no to for so long or they've had to jump through so many hoops. Zave is all friendly about, they're like, I'm sure they're probably like, really, that's it? You're, you'll do it? You're like, yeah. Like, I'm sure that they're used to so much more red tape, so to say, correct? Totally right, totally right. And because we started, you know, we said, okay, we commit to do one limited edition with each of our retailing partners. And they were super happy. They, were, they couldn't believe it. It was like, yeah, really? Are you going to do that? Normally, it's only uh, Mr. X or Mr. Y that gets all the limited edition because he's the biggest retailer of the brand and we get nothing. And I said, no, it's not how big you are. It's a people business. I cannot suddenly segregate, you know? You're a nice guy. I believe in you. That's why we have a partnership. Let's go together and you will make the limited edition of your size. And we're happy with that. Now, we're also careful. Uh, you, you, I don't want to frighten auditors. We're making less and less limited editions. Or let's say we are trying to funnel them through a process that they don't come out too fast. Because if not, then we would like would look like some brands who've been killing themselves by doing too many limited editions. So we we do a few and we try to please everyone. But we also receive from our audience, from our collectors, from our shareholders, a message saying, because you're doing too many limited editions. Slow down. Okay, so we did slow down. So now there are still some limited editions in the pipeline, but less. And uh, and we decided that, okay, we're going to do five bespoke, fully bespoke watches per year. We cannot afford for more. We're going to do 10, 15 limited editions for retailer per year, not more. And maybe we'll do a few limited editions for ourselves and not more. And there is going to be limited production. Uh, which is the direction in which we would like to go in the future. I don't know if the market will accept it, but we would like to remain relatively small. Uh, we we don't aim at becoming giants. We were not giants at the beginning. We're, we're, we we prefer to to stay, you know, in a in a number that allows me. You sound like it's hard. Like, don't you just have to say, "I don't want to make more"? Like, what I, I get re- really? What's the challenge about staying small? Uh, because people are willing to buy watches and you don't want to make them wait for for too long, you know? So you have to find a way that people so don't get mad. So it's a sense of mad. discipline. Yeah, don't get mad at you because suddenly you got two years wait. Today, it's two years wait to get to get an Antarctic. It's about a year for the other uh, collection. A collection, so it's, it's long to wait that uh, that time. So, But I find it long, you know? So maybe I'm wrong, huh? Again, you know, it, it's, it's long too. now, but you will you will be happy ten years from now that you did not overproduce today. Okay, so we're on the same page. We prefer, yeah, to keep you know control of of what we are doing. And this is what we did this year in Watches and Wonder when we decided to give allocations to everyone. Saying this is a number you will have, and we cannot go above that because if not, we we might kill ourselves for for trying to become the uh, you know the there is the frog and the cow and the, 
frog tries to inflate himself as big as a cow and just in the end just blows. So uh <laughs> explodes. So that we don't want we don't want to we don't want that. So we prefer to go at at a, at a fast pace, but at a pace that we can control. I already have a bunch more topics that we can discuss next time, but we're we're out of time now. The website, everyone, is chapek.com. That's C-Z-A-P-E-K.com. Xavier de Rocmarel is my guest. Thank you so much for uh, being on this episode. We have lots more to chat about. Xavier, thank you. Take care. Bye, guys. Happy to be connected with you. Cheers. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Superlative Podcast. This show relies on support from you, the audience. Please subscribe, review, and share Superlative with your friends. To get the latest watch news and enthusiast commentary, also listen to the Blog to Watch weekly podcast. For show ideas, comments, or business, please contact us at podcasts at blogtowatch.com.